The Parsha B'Shalach, as we know, begins with B'nai Yisrael <coughs> having left Mitzrayim, and the opening Pasuk actually describes the route that was taken, or perhaps more accurately, the route that was not taken. And we read the opening Pasuk, Vayihi B'Shalach Paro Es Ha'am, it was when Paro uh, sent the nation forth, V'lo Nacham Elokim Derech Eretz Pelishtim. Hashem did not guide the people by way of the land of the Plishtim, Ki Korovhu. And the word Ki, which we normally translate as because, although we discovered a couple of weeks ago that Ki can also mean Afalpi, even though, and perhaps that's what the verse means, he didn't lead them by way of the Plishtim, even though it was the more direct route. Although, <coughs> perhaps the word key can mean because in the sense that we don't be, the very fact that it was the more direct route is also the reason not to lead them that way. As the Pasuk concludes, Lest they have a change of heart when they meet war and go back to Mitzrayim. And therefore, perhaps we don't want them to... Uh, have the most direct route because they'd make a beeline, uh, as we would call it, back to Mitzrayim, and therefore they were taken on a more circuitous route. The word that catches the attention of the Rishonim in this opening Pasuk actually is not the word key, <coughs> it's the word pen. Because the word pen, which we would translate as lest, that's a good a biblical English translation of lest, it happens to be true. And, be, and pen denotes an element of doubt. Lest means perhaps. We know <coughs> that pen is not the only word that the Torah uses for perhaps. The more common word, we might say, is ulai, which also features in the Torah. And what is the difference between ulai and pen? On this matter, we have a famous comment of the Vilnagon that really, <coughs> when one raises a possibility, there are two potential scenarios. Either it's a possibility that one hopes will happen or a possibility that one hopes will not. That's why we translate the word pen as lest, because lest has the connotation of something one doesn't want to happen. Ulai is something that one does want to happen. And indeed, hard to recall <coughs> this explanation of the Vilna Gaon without also remembering that this is his understanding of how Chazal knew, going back to Parshas Chayesora, that when Eliezer asks his famous question, what if the girl does not want to come after me, shall I take Yitzhak there? Chazal famously say, that Eliezer had a vested interest here <coughs> because he had thought that perhaps his own daughter would be the one for Yitzchak. And the question, of course, is how did Chazal know that? After all, it is a fair question. It does need to be addressed. Perhaps she won't want to come back. Then what? So it's not wrong to raise the possibility. How do we know that Eliezer is raising it actually with his own daughter in mind? And the Vilna Gon 
explained <coughs> that the the pasuk says Vayomer ha'eved ulai lo Maybe she won't want to come after me. If indeed all Eliezer was doing was raising the possibility, he should have said pen lo isha because that reflects some a possibility that you hope will not occur. But there was a bit of a slip here. When he says Ulai, that gave away, that betrayed, that part of Eliezer is thinking, and I hope she doesn't, because then maybe other possibilities will open up. Be that as it may. This is the difference between Pen and Ulai, but they both denote something that one doesn't know about, one isn't sure about. Of course, <coughs> the problem is, this is the Torah talking. This is the Torah describing HaKadosh Baruch Hu's actions and reasons for them. Does Hashem not know whether they will have a change of heart upon seeing war? Presumably he does. And therefore, how can we use, to summarize the question, how can we use a term that denotes doubt before Hashem, who has no doubt about things? (coughs) And the simplest answer to this question is provided by the Ibn Ezra, who raises it, so that's of note, it caught the attention of the Ibn Ezra. And Ibn Ezra says very simply that Hashem knew that they would have a change of heart. There was no doubt that they would, if they would meet war, they'd want to go as directly back to Mitzrayim as they could. Aye, so why does it use the term pen, which denotes uncertainty, perhaps, or lest? says Ibn Ezra, because we have a principle that Dibra Torah, Colossian B'nai Adam, the Torah speaks in the way of people, and therefore as surely as a person would make his decisions based on things that he is not, not sure about, but wishes to avoid, so too it is an employing of that concept. It speaks in the way of people, which is a chidush, but Ibn Ezra is no stranger to chidushim. What's interesting is, <coughs> Rabbi Nubachya. And we see Rishonim are they're, they're, on, they're over this question. These are things that bothered the Rishonim. Perhaps uh, more than they bothered us. We, 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 I don't know that we would be so uh, caught up in this question, but perhaps that doesn't reflect so, so well on us. Either way, Rabbi Nubachya says, in this instance, the word pen does not denote a doubt. It purely means it's something that Hashem wanted to avoid because he knew it would happen. Now, what has Rabbeinu Bachia done? He's taken the word pen, <coughs> which normally means lest, i.e. perhaps, and said that it doesn't mean perhaps. There is no doubt here. Well, what does the word pen mean? The Ksava Kabbalah, picking up on the trail <coughs> of Rabbeinu Bachia, says that the word pen here relates to the term lefanos. Lefanos is to remove, as we know. Pinisi habayis. And therefore pen is the verb of avoiding, removing a problem. It, it, but it doesn't necessarily denote a problem that one isn't sure about. One could be sure about it. One wishes to remove it. So quite a lot to speak about, even in the seemingly innocuous word pen, uh, already the, the Mephorshim, beginning with Rishonim, are, are in on the discussion. But what is equally interesting is the Pasuk concludes that perhaps they'll, they'll head back to Mitzrayim <coughs> when they see war. And now the question is, 
Which war? What war might they see that would lead them back to Mitzrayim? And, ha- and is that war itself avoided by not taking them through the plishtim? In other words, what we are asking is, by not taking them derech eretz plishtim, are we also avoiding the war? Or are we just avoiding a direct route back? And here, again, Rishonim seem to be divided. Rashi, <coughs> if we may say very simply, says that the wars in question are with Amalek and with the Kena'ani. In other words, that, that may sound oversimple. We know that those wars were there. But what Rashi means to say is these are wars that they would have experienced anyway. This has nothing to do with the route that they take. The point of not taking them on this direct plishti route is not that they will avoid thereby certain wars. It's just when they do have those wars, they won't have this direct route back to Mitzrayim. That seems to be the approach of Rashi. However, (coughs) other Rishonim understand that in fact, by not taking them through this direct plishti route, Hashem was actually avoiding wars in those early stages. Which, of course, begs the question, why would the Plishti, it sounds like there would have been war with the Plishtim. And that's why they weren't taken that way, because if you go through the Plishtim, there'll be war. But what war would the Plishtim have with them? Uh, They have no experience. They've never encountered the Plishtim before in, in this way. Why do you assume there'd be a war? One could say balabatishly, because if they go through the Plishti's land, I mean, that's, that's, not, that's not the start of a beautiful friendship. <coughs> and perhaps it could lead to war. However, the Tosvos, there are two fascinating explanations found in the Rishonim here as to why going through, uh, giving them exposure to the Plishtim would result in the Plishtim waging war on them. The Tosvos say... <coughs> That if you want to know the role of the plishtim here, of the Philistines in this whole thing, how are they connected? They are connected. They're not connected to the Jewish people, but they are connected to the Egyptians. Because the plishtim are actually descended. They're one of the groups that descended from Mitzrayim. Descending meaning genealogically. Why do we say this? Well, if you want to know who's who... In the nations of the world, back in the day, go back to Parshas Noach, where they're all discussed. And in Parshas Noach, Perik Yud, Pasuk <coughs> Yud Gimel, it states, Umitzrayim, right? It goes through the families of Shem, Ham, and Yafes. From Ham comes Mitzrayim. Umitzrayim yalad es ludim, es anamim, es lahavim, es naftuchim. Next verse, Yud Dalet, es pasrusim, es pasluchim. Asher misham plishtim. In other words, the plishtim derived from, they claim descent from, or they were descended <coughs> from Mitzrayim. So, so it's a family fight. They might take up the grievance of Mitzrayim, having been so humiliated by this group coming through, the Jewish people, so the plishtim and their mishpacha, and therefore they may, they may try and fight the fight of Mitzrayim. And what's fascinating, further fascinating about this approach, is that the Balea Tosfah say that is the meaning when it says that Hashem did not take B'nai Yisrael, Derech Eretz Pelishtim, Kikarovhu. 
What is the meaning of the phrase Kikarofu? We understand <coughs> that the reference is to the path. The path is near in geographical terms. It's direct. Interestingly, and without getting too much into it, the word derech generally is feminine. One could have said, derech eres klishtim, kikrovahi. Derech is feminine, often. Generally, not always. But according to the Tosfos, Kikarov, who isn't referring to the root through the plishtim, it's referring to the plishtim. The plishti is a karov to the mitzri. The mishpacha. And that's why he may take it badly if those that just uh, humiliated his uncle or his father or grandfather or whatever they is <coughs> would then try and go through his land. And that's, that would have been war. And that war was avoided by not taking him through Derek Heretz plishti. Chidush. And the second explanation of the, of the Rishonim comes from the Chizkuni. The Chizkuni, one of the lesser quoted Rishonim, but a classic commentary on the Torah. And he says that when we, when we uh, say that the Jewish people had no prior encounter or no prior uh, altercation with the Plishtim, that's not entirely true. It happens to be. There is a Masorah that we have. It's based on a Pasuk in the Navi, and the Gemara elaborates further. <coughs> there was a group among the Jewish people who tried to leave Mitzrayim early. They independently tried to leave 30 years early, and they were B'nai Ephraim, descendants of Ephraim. Not all of B'nai Ephraim, there is a tribe called Ephraim that leaves Mitzrayim, but you had this group, they had to get out. And there's a very telling comment of Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky when he discusses this in Parshas Vayechi <coughs> or later in, the, in Bereshis that the reason why Ephraim more than any tribe were keen to leave Mitzrayim at the first possible opportunity is because they were the most quote unquote Egyptian of the tribes they were in a sense naturalized practically Egyptian citizens they're descended from Yosef they're the second son of Yosef Kihifrani Elohim all of the success, and they were the ones who were, if we may say carefully, but most devastated by the fact that their former landsmen would now uh, turn on them without pity and not recognize any of uh, their role and contribution, etc. For them, it was, it was too much, and therefore the earliest possible opportunity that they saw, they seized. However, it was too early, and as the Pasuk says, they went through Derech Eretz Gat, and Gat is Plishtim, Heiman Naflu, Beyom Karab. They were decimated by the Plishtim. So that is a certain piece of prehistory in our exodus from Egypt. The first group to try and leave were confronted and, and slaughtered by the Plishtim. With that in mind, if the entire Jewish people now make their way through the land of Plishtim, the Plishtim will naturally assume, says the Chizkuni, they've come for revenge, and they will arm accordingly, and they will be, there will be a war. That's the war that would have happened, and that's the war that's avoided by, by circumventing Derech Eretz Plishtim. So two, uh, to summarize, two general approaches among the Rishonim, for Rashi and his school, the wars wouldn't take place, with the Plishtim, it's just, it would be a very direct route back to Mitzrayim. But for the Tosus and the Chizkuni, it was the war itself <coughs> with the Plishtim that that would have been the problem, and that was avoided by not taking them through Derech Eretz Plishtim. 
it is in place, if we could just jump forward a few hundred years, to mention a PS on this discussion from the Ksav Sofer. It, and as is so often the case with the Mephorshim, it's as valuable for the questions that it raises as for the answers that it gives, because it encourages us always to pay as close attention as we can to the phraseology of the Pasuk. Once again, the Pasuk says, Bishalach Poros Ha'am, Hashem did not lead them Derech Eretz Pelishtim. Why not? Ki Amar Elohim Penyinachem Ha'am. Perhaps the nation will be Penyinachem. Menachem means to regret, which is interesting. We naturally assume that the people will be scared and therefore go back to Egypt. But the person doesn't say that they'll be scared. It just says that they'll regret. But why would they regret? Penyinachem ha'am bir'osa milchama. The literal translation of bir'osa milchama is when they see war which when you think about it, has to be the most euphemistic way of referring to people being in a war. When people are in a war, they don't see war. They're in the war. They're fighting. They're either attacking or defending. War has two sides. And if you're one of them, no one ever referred to being in battle as, I I saw a war. But that seems to be the problem. And the Ksav Sofer has a startling uh, explanation of this whole matter. It's interesting, he notes, that when B'nai Yisrael left Mitzrayim, we never really see, as perhaps one could have expected without further elaboration, <coughs> that they exacted any type of retribution on their, uh, on their overseers, even when they were relatively helpless. And certainly there was never kind of any armed insurrection or such like, not, there, not at the time and not when they left. And the answer, very simply, is because they were not what we would call melumadei milchama. They're not schooled in the art of war. Their generations are purely with their... They have no access to any knowledge about how to, how to, how to do battle. So when the time come to leave, came to leave, they left. But what if they should find out how a war is waged? And how would they do that? By seeing war. The problem that HaKadosh Baruch Hu wanted to forestall is that they shouldn't go back to Mitzrayim, and, and they might. You know why? Because when they say war, when they see war, and they'll say, oh, that's how it's done. You know what? Maybe they'll regret. Maybe they'll regret having left Mitzrayim without having meted out that form of justice, and now they know how, having seen how it's done. Big Chiddush from the Ksav Sofer, HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, leave them, don't go back, Hashem himself will take care of them in the fullness of time, but your wars will be with other people, you'll see war, you'll learn war, uh, moving forward, not moving backwards. So these are very interesting comments on the opening Pasuk of Bishalach, <coughs> and from there we move to the centerpiece, undoubtedly, of the Parsha, which is Kriyas Yamsuf and related matters. So if they would say in the classics, we should uh, cut to the chase. I think in this uh, instance, it's more appropriate to chase to the cut. Either way, we find ourselves at Kriyas Yamsuf. And what's important to, to discuss about Kriyas Yamsuf is that we know it, shall we say, let's give it one or two introductory comments. We know it as the Let's call it the final 
chapter of retribution for the Egyptians. This was it. After this, it was all over. But the question that it's worthwhile asking is, is this the final chapter just in the sense of more of the same and and now it's enough? Meaning, is there any qualitative difference? Is there anything that was introduced with Kriyas Yamsev that, that was not introduced before? Or is it merely the honorary number 11 on the list of plagues? And then, and then it was just done. It's, uh, you've had your 10 plagues, here's your maftir, and they're finished. There is reason to believe <coughs> that actually Kriyas Yamsev did bring something new to the Jewish people. And the reason we say this begins with a, a fascinating comment of the Medrash. The, the Medrash discusses the fact that Avram is called Ivri, <clears throat> and the Jewish people are called Ivrim. Now, we're familiar with uh, one or two explanations as to why Avram is called Ivri. He's Ivri because he came from over the, the sea. He's, he's on one side, everyone's on the other side. Many well-known explanations, and these are from, from the Medrash. <coughs> a lesser-known explanation of the term Ivrim from the Medrash is that it is a contraction of the two words Avar Yam. It's amalgamation of Avar Yam becomes Ivrim. Obviously, with an eye on the future, we haven't gone through the sea yet, but with an eye on the Jewish people going through the sea, They are called Ivrim. And this gives us to understand that the title Ivrim, or more correctly, the the splitting of the Red Sea and the experiences at Yamsuf, are much more than something that we experience, something that happened to us. They actually became something that defined us. We are Ivrim of our Yam. And now the question is, the splitting of the Red Sea, or the Reed Sea, as many people say, the Yamsuf, It's undoubtedly a historic event. But why is it a defining event for us? There is another comment of the Medrash, which one could call it a tributary to the splitting of the Red Sea. Because the Medrash attributes the splitting of the Red Sea to an earlier event. And it's based on a Pasuk in Hallel. I think it's a well-known Medrash. The Pasuk says in Hallel, when it talks about the splitting of the, of the Yamsuf, Hayam ra'ah vayanas. The sea saw and it, and it fled. When we say people split, it, it, it wasn't meant in that way. Here, it was both. But the sea saw and, it's, and, it, and it fled. <coughs> vayanas, which is interesting. We don't normally think of the sea fleeing. It it divided in half, but it's called fleeing. And the Medrash says, this was in the merit of an earlier Vayanos, an earlier fleeing. Where do we have an earlier fleeing in the Tanakh? In the Chumash. It is none other than Yosef with Potiphar's wife. On that fateful day, she grabs him by the jacket or the tunic or whatever. Vayanos he ran out, left. He fled. Says the Medrash, because of Yosef's, in the merit of Yosef's Vayonas, Hayam Ra'a Vayonas. And our question is, <coughs> what is Yosef and Potiphar's wife got to do with the splitting of the Red Sea? 
I mean, it was a good deed. Good deeds breed merit. But is there something, a closer connection? We have many merits. There's Avram, Mitzach, and Yaakov also had merits. But there's something about this episode with Yosef and Potiphar's wife that leads the, 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 Red, sea, the, the Red Sea to split. A final introductory comment. There is a concept that we will find later on in Chumash Devarim of emulating Hashem's ways. It's considered a major Jewish concept, a major Jewish theme. In Devarim, it will be called Vahalachta Bedrachav, to go on Hashem's ways, or Ledov Kabo, to cleave to Hashem, just like He is compassionate, you should be compassionate, He does kindness, you do kindness. Imitatio Dei, what is called, to emulate Hashem. It's discussed many times in Chumash Devarim, <coughs> but actually, the root of the concept of, of emulating Hashem is in Az Yashir. So says the Gemara in Maseches Shabbos, Kuflamad Gimel, Ahmed Beis. When, when we say in Az Yashir, Zekeli va'anvehu, this is my God, va'anvehu, and we translate, and I will glorify him, says the Gemara, it means to follow in his ways. How does va'anvehu denote following in Hashem's ways? Rashi explains, va'anvehu is an amalgamation of anivahu. Ve'anvehu, anivahu. <coughs> Me and him. Meaning to make myself as similar as he is. The question is, what is this doing in Shira Sayam, in Az Yashir? Az Yashir, I would say, is about the events of Kriyas Yamsuf. What is there about the splitting of the Red Sea that made the Jewish people feel they should emulate Hashem? How is that theme now centered in these events? Ad come the introductory comments, and <coughs> the answer to all of this, I believe, will come, if I may use the expression, from diving right in to the psukim of Az Yashir, and to see one phrase in particular. In Perek Tesvav Pasukhes, where these are psukim that we're very familiar with, it's Az Yashir and Psukit Zimra. And what does Pasukhes say of Perek Tesvav? Uvaruach apecha ne'ermu mayim. Uvaruach apecha, literally through the breath of your nostrils, ne'ermu mayim. What is the meaning of the words ne'ermu mayim? What does ne'ermu mean? Mayim means water. What does ne'ermu mean? Well, the simple understanding is that ne'ermu means piled up. The water were piled up. How does ne'ermu mean piled up? It relates to the word arema. Arema is a pile. So the water was piled up on either side. Ne'ermu mayim. What is most interesting, however is that if you look in Unculus, he has a very different translation, completely different, in fact, on the words Ne'er Mumayim. Unculus says Ne'er Mumayim means Chakimu Maya. The water became wise. How does Ne'er mean wisdom? Because Unculus relates it not Ne'er not to the word Arema, which is a pile, but rather to Orma which is wisdom, cunning. And therefore, ne'ermumayim, <coughs> says Unculus, means the water became wise. In a sense, Unculus's translation is almost completely baffling. 
because what is the, what is the meaning of water becoming wise? And, and, and why not describe what the water did, that it piled up? Why does Unculus insist on relating the word ne'emumayim to arma, to wisdom? But the Vilnagon elaborates on Unculus's approach. And the truth is, says the, says the Gon, if you want to understand what it means for the water to become wise, and, and where did that wisdom come from, <coughs> consider the beginning of the phrase, which I think we often overlook, maybe because we're not sure what to do with it. But the phrase literally says, Uveruach apecha. When we would describe the events of the splitting of the Red Sea, how was the sea split? From a wind, a wind that blew it. However, that wind affected the, the split. And where did that wind come from? We would consider that a non-question. Where did the wind come from? It comes from wherever winds come from. I mean, it started one place and, you know, Hashem um, moves winds around and he moved this one around. But Az Yashir says, no, that's not what happened. Because this ruach is ruach apecha. apecha. Apecha means your nostrils. That means that this wind came from Hashem. Directly, to the extent that we can say that. That's what the Pasuk says. But this is now very interesting. It, it could potentially reveal a completely new uh, dimension to this whole episode. Because in our Chumash experience, there's only one other time when Hashem breathed into anything. And that's when he created man. And what was the effect of breathing into man? An entirely new type of being. He took Afra min ha'adama, dirt from the ground, and a man became nefesh chaya, a living being. When Hashem breathes into something, it elevates it, needless to say, to something completely of a higher order. Well, if he breathes into the water, it gave wisdom to the water. The question that remains for us to ask is, and how does that wisdom lead to the water splitting? It, the water becomes a conscious entity and realizes it should split? <coughs> to understand how bestowing wisdom, instilling wisdom into the water made it split, we need to talk about water just for another one or two moments. And the truth is that water is, is part of Chumash Shemos almost from the beginning. It's the reason that Moshe got his name. Why is he called Moshe? As the Pasuk says, He was drawn up from the water. And <coughs> Maharal expresses his uh, surprise that that should be Moshe's name. We normally understand that a person's name, one could say, sums up their essence or sums up their achievements or at least is characteristic of them. This is not a characteristic at all. It's something that happened to him. Did Moshe do nothing with his life other than something that someone picked him up from the water? Obviously, that enabled that act, enabled his achievements. But what does it essentially have to do with Moshe himself? But the truth is, says Maharal, that this expression, min hamaye mishisihu, encompasses all of Moshe. It reflects the totality of Moshe's achievements. And to understand why that is, we need to discuss water just a little bit more. 
because <coughs> although water, just like physical water, it has many different properties and can give life and can take life and, 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 and many things in between, but significantly, says Maharal, this is in the Sefer Guvura Sashem, <coughs> which is Maharal's work on Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, water represents formlessness. Water itself has no form, right? It assumes the form of whatever you put it in. And if you spill it out, it, it has no form. And not only does water have no form, it even has the property of removing the form from something else. If water washes over something enough, it just, it can reduce any type of distinct <coughs> form. That's what's represented by water, a complete lack of form. And the truth is, says Maharal, it's for this reason that the first time we find a major punishment for mankind, it comes through the medium of water. Because <coughs> the generation of the flood, as much as we have many details of their behavior, it's possible to sum it all up by saying that they had lost all form of distinction. There was no framework, there, was no, there were no rules, it was absolute chaos. And, and the only difference between uh, a human being and an animal was basically four legs versus two. But in terms of behavior, there was absolute no boundaries and no form. And that is why they met their end measure for measure through water. Because the punishment fit the crime. Having abdicated on their form and their human distinction, they were punished by something which has no form and which removes the form. The world was absolutely formless after the, after the flood. And in fact, according to Rashi, this is endemic in the word mabal itself. We translate mabal as flood. That's an easy translation. But etymologically, how does the word mabal mean flood? And Rashi gives a number of explanations. <coughs> but one of them, says Rashi, is that the word mabal comes from the word mevale, levalos. Levalos means to wear something away, which is fascinating because it, it means that the very name mabal is called after this characteristic of wearing things away. It's very interesting and very telling that the very first thing that Noah and his family were told upon exiting the ark is that it was mutter for them, permissible for them, to consume the meat of animals. I'm not sure if any of them wanted to see another animal for as long as they lived, but uh, it was halakhically mutter. And the reason why <coughs> is because the prohibition which initially was in place for a human to kill an animal was mis mishandled because it then deteriorated into people saying, well, if I can't kill an animal, I presume that because who am I to kill an animal? What makes me better than him? Which is one step away of saying, what's the difference between me and an animal? And the results ensued. And the results was the generation of the flood. <coughs> and therefore, the very first thing that they're told is, you have permission to eat animals. If you cannot deal responsibly with the prohibition, better that you should be able to consume them than to ultimately become indistinguishable from them, which is what led to the flood. So this is the mankind's first encounter with this aspect of water. And thus, says Maharal, 
When we say that Moshe was called Moshe because he was drawn up from the water, that really reflects Moshe as being drawn up and elevated from the formlessness of water to attain the ultimate human distinction, <coughs> which incorporates then all of his achievements, transmitting of the Torah, leading B'nai Israel out of Mitzrayim, being the conduit for the man, and so on and so forth. All of that is called Min Hamayim Mishisihu, drawn up from the water to attain his ultimate form. And the truth is, <coughs> all of this should now cast <coughs> the whole event of Kriyas Yamsuf in a completely new light. The, the, the traveling through the Red Sea was a station on the way to receiving the Torah. And it was not just a geographical station. There was something the Jewish people needed to learn about themselves and about what was expected of them. And what, how, what form did this take place? <coughs> Water solidified before them and parted in front of them. In other words, what they experienced as their final act of salvation is the formless water attaining form. And this was a message to the Jewish people themselves. What HaKadosh Baruch was saying is, what I just did to the water, that's what is about to happen with you. That's what's expected of you. When you're given the Torah, it's also to assert and to bestow form on an otherwise formless world. <coughs> and that is why the, the verse says, The water piled up because it became wise. In other words, by attaining this higher uh, characteristic of wisdom, of arma, that's when the water became Arema. HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, I breathed wisdom into the water and it attained form. And I've breathed, I've breathed wisdom into you, so you now need to assert form on what is often an otherwise formless world. The question is, <coughs> are the Jewish people deserving <coughs> of such a challenge? Are the Jewish people deserving of such a task? And it happens to be that they are. But in what merit? Well, they themselves, in their own experience, have begun already to assert form. That is to say, to act in an idealistic manner by taking the Korban Pesach and by following Moshe out into, into the desert, into the middle of nowhere. They are being fueled by higher ideals, which is already, in a sense, asserting form. On The, the formlessness is just to... It's just to stay, stay, where it's, stay where you are. But there's something else. There's a prior event which was decisive in aiding the Jewish people on this occasion. Yosef and Potiphar's wife. Because <coughs> Potiphar wishes, Potiphar's wife wishes for Yosef to act in a way which is perhaps more appropriate for the Egyptians and not to respect his boundaries. She doesn't respect her boundaries. It's all formless and, and as the mood takes them and regardless of the, of the rules and regardless of the, the wrongness of it, and how does Yosef respond at that critical time? Vayonas, vayetzea chutzah. 
overcoming her uh, wiles and temptation, etc., he flees the scene. But what is he doing? He is saying, it's not acceptable. I do not live in a formless way. And, and I will do whatever it takes in order to escape such a situation. Says the Medrash, in the merit of Vayonas Vayetze Hachutza, Hayam Ra'a Vayonas, the sea split. In other words, it's the type of, of uh, act that Yosef did which already enabled the Jewish people and gave them merit. He asserted form over formlessness. And that allowed the, <coughs> the Red Sea also to split, the water to attain form. So the sea splits before the Jewish people. The water solidifies. But when the Egyptians enter, it crashes in on them. And there's a deeper understanding of why that is. In other words, of course, we understand the Jewish people are to be saved and the Egyptians are to be punished. But it's more than that. The water, which is formlessness, assumed form and parted in front of the Jewish people because the Jewish people themselves had begun, had roots of a certain tsura form, and that enabled the sea to split. But what about Egypt? Egypt has no such values. When the Torah wants to warn the Jewish people of promiscuous behaviors, it says, don't act like they did in Mitzrayim. Says the Pasuk in, in Acharemos. Don't act in, in this absolute formless way they did, the way they did in Mitzrayim. So, so if, the sea, if the sea parted and solidified for the Jewish people who were B'nai Tzura, who were people of form and distinction, well, that was as long as they're walking through. But when the Egyptians go through, and they are people fundamentally lacking in form, so the water responded in kind, lost its form, and crashed in on them. In other words, it's fair to say that each of these two groups, they met themselves in the Red Sea. If you're people of form, the sea assumed form. But if you're a formless people, so then it lost its form to, to, to the Egyptians' great expense. <clears throat> and indeed, according to the Ibn Ezra, this happened simultaneously. While the Jewish people were yet going through the, the Yamsuf, behind them were the Egyptians, the waters were crashing in. I mentioned parenthetically, having, having uh, referenced this Ibn Ezra, that it was simultaneous. I wonder whether this could explain to us something else. There are two verses that refer to the splitting of the Red Sea. They're almost identical. They're Perig Yudalit, Pasuk Kaf Beis and Pasuk Kaf Tes, verses 14 and 29. They both say almost the same thing. They both end with the words, the Hamayim lehem choma miminam umismolam. The water was a wall on, for the Jewish people on the right and on the left. There is one difference between them. And that is that the first time in Pasuk Kafbeis, when it says Vahamayim lehem choma, the word choma is written with a vav. Chet vav mem he, choma. The second time in Pasuk Kaftes, it's written without a vav. It's still pronounced choma, but it's without a vav. Why is this repeated? And why is the vav removed the second time round between Pasuk Kafbeis? 
And Pasuk Kaftes. I believe, based on the Ibn Ezra, one can explain. When a word is written out in full, it represents something that exists in full. When a word is written with a, word, with a letter missing, it sometimes denotes something that's missing from the thing it's describing. So, so in Pasuk Kaftes, which describes the Red Sea when only the Jewish people are in it, the word Chomer is written in full because the walls were full. They were complete walls all the way through. But the second time round, by the time we see in Pasuk Kaftes the same words, the walls were not complete anymore because the earlier verses, 27, 28, have already described the water crashing in on the Egyptians. So the walls were chaser. They're still open for the Jewish people, but they've already closed in behind them on the Egyptians. The walls is chaser. The word Choma is chaser. <coughs> what we do see is that in splitting the Red Sea for the Jewish people, HaKadosh Baruch Hu was sending them a message as to what they are capable of. I have done this to the Red Sea. I'm taking you to receive the Torah. You need to finish the job. You need to do this to the world, to impose order on an otherwise orderless and formless world. And because that's true, the Jewish people responded in Az Yashir by saying, Zeh Keli Va'anvehu. This is my God, Va'anvehu, as the Gemara told us in Shabbos, I will emulate him. Anivahu. Va'anvehu. Anivahu. Because that's the very reason why HaKadosh Baruch Hu brought them through this experience for them to emulate it. And that's why with the first reference to this concept of emulating Hashem comes in Az Yashir. And indeed, <coughs> this is uh, one of the two primary explanations of the word Adam. The reason why man is called Adam. Well, <coughs> On the one hand, on a very basic level, he's called Adam because he comes from the Adama, from the ground. From the, but that's only part of him. I mean, the earthy part of him comes from the earth. But is that the totality of man? It's not the totality of man. There's another reason why he's called Adam. <coughs> and interestingly, it relates to the concept of emulating Hashem. The word Adam, say the Mephorshim, is from the word Edamela Elyon. I will imitate Hashem. So you have a lower definition of man and a higher definition. <coughs> the lower definition, one could say almost like the formless definition. The basic is that he's from Adama. But, but more is expected of man. The full meaning of man comes from Edame Laelion, as expressed through Hashem splitting the Red Sea and telling man to do likewise. And the Bali Haremes explain that <coughs> this is something that was revealed at the time of Kriyas Yamsuf. When the waters were split, the Pasuk says, Vayibaku Hamayim. Vayibaku Hamayim. Waters were split. The word Mayim, Mem Yud Mem, has a gematria of 90. Mem is 40, two Mems is 80, and Yud is, is 90. But what happened? At Kriyas Yamsuf is Vayibaku Hamai. The waters were split, and when you split 90, you get 45, which is the gematria of the word Adam. In other words, 
Vayibaku Hamayim means through the splitting of the of the waters, they found they found what it means to be Adam in the full sense of the word. With this in mind, we can well understand why the Medrash says that we are called Ivrim because of Avar Yam, because we passed through the Red Sea. If it was just quote unquote another miracle that happened for our benefit, that wouldn't become our name. That doesn't define us. But on the contrary, <coughs> of our yam, what we saw, what we experienced, it was a defining experience. It came to define us because that then becomes the, the mandate and mission of the Jewish people as they receive the Torah, to do to the world what Hashem did to the Yamsuf, to impose on a formless world um, what Hashem had done to the formless waters. So I think there's, there's a great deal to, to ponder here uh, in this discussion, which is based significantly on the, the writings of one of the great Tamidei uh, Chachamim here in Yushalayim, Rav Uri Yungreis is his name in his Sefer, Uri Vayishi. Certainly it puts the whole, uh, casts the whole of Kriya Samsev in a completely uh, new and deeper light. Well, <clears throat> Having worked hard for the bulk of the of the year, let's conclude just with a class, classic parshanut observation of the Meshachachma. And it relates to the episode of the man, which is, uh, from what I can see, the totality of chapter 16. Right? And it's, it's a lot of sukkim, it's over 30 sukkim, 35, 36, whatever it is. Uh, and there's many, many details and many descriptions of the man during the week and on Shabbos and so on and so forth. And we'll move to the end of the chapter, which, uh, and in fact, the Pasuk Lamed Beis. Pasuk Lamed Beis. Again, Perik Tetzayin Pasuk Lamed Beis. <coughs> so much had happened. Uh, they shouldn't leave any over. Some people did. The, twice as much came on a Friday. They shouldn't go out on Shabbos. Some people did. Many, many important lessons, formational lessons. And presumably that's why the Torah speaks about it at such length. And it's so important, in fact, that HaKadosh Baruch at the end of this chapter actually told Moshe to take some man and to put it away. It should be there as for safekeeping for future generations. Let's see how that's described. Posuk Lamed Beis. Vayome Moshe. Zeadavar Ashetziva Hashem. This is so, so has it commanded Hashem. Meloha Oma Mimenu Lemeshmeres Lederoseichem. An omer full of man, which was the daily uh, amount, <coughs> for safekeeping for your generations. Let people see, people should be able to see. They should see the food, the bread, the food that I fed you in the wilderness. So Hashem has commanded that an omer of man should be put away for safekeeping. Okay. So Moshe tells Aaron, take a flask, and put an omer of man there, and place it before Hashem, okay, similar idea. Final verse in the trilogy of verses about this. Just as Hashem commanded Moshe, Aaron put it before the testimony as a safekeeping. <coughs> and Meshachachma actually opens his remarks by saying, The difficulty is self-evident. 
which of course sends everyone else scurrying to find out what it is that he finds difficult with the, with the verse, but it is self-evident. <coughs> this final verse, Lamed Dalet, says, Just as Hashem commanded Moshe, Aaron put it before, before the testimony. Well, if Hashem commanded Moshe, then, then why is Aaron doing it? And you, you emphasize that this was done just as Hashem commanded Moshe, and Aaron did it. And, and, but the truth is, there's more to it than that. <coughs> One could say, perhaps, balabatishly, that uh, Hashem commanded Moshe that Aaron should do it. The Pasuk doesn't say, Kasher Tziva Hashem Es Moshe, as Hashem commanded Moshe. It says, Kasher Tziva Hashem El Moshe, as Hashem commanded towards Moshe, to Moshe. That indicates very clearly that this was something for Moshe to do. This was not something that Hashem commanded Moshe. He commanded it towards Moshe. And we should know, and I only know this because Meshachachma said it, this is the only time in the entire Chumash that this expression is used. Kasher tziva Hashem el Moshe. Every other time it says es Moshe. And el Moshe seems to be going out of its way to say this was a direct command to Moshe. So now the verse is very difficult. Hashem told Moshe to do it, and Aaron did it. How, how does that verse flow in a straight line? Interesting shina. Says Meshachah. <coughs> if we go back to the first of these three verses, we note that Hashem tells, uh, or, or Moshe reports the, the command of Hashem, Melo ha'omer mimenu lemishmeres An omer full should be for safekeeping. Where? Where should it be placed? Where should it be put for safekeeping? The verse doesn't say. Why doesn't the verse say, after all, we will ultimately find out that it should be placed before the testimony, before the Aron, says Meshachachma, yes. But at the time this was originally said to Moshe, there was no Aron. There was no Mishkan. This is... At the time when the man falls, the man falls before we even receive the Torah, and certainly numerous months before we had a Mishkan. <coughs> and therefore, the initial command is not going to mention Lifnei Ha'edus before the testimony. There is no testimony at that time. It just needs to be put away for safekeeping, which is, leads us to a very important um, conclusion, which Rashi himself says, and that is that. The following two verses, where Moshe begins to tell Aaron to put it in front of the testimony, were said a number of months later on. But they formed the conclusion of our parsha, but they were not said at the time. At the time is Pasaglamet Beis, the first of the three verses, put away. In the fullness of time, when you have a Mishkan and an Ark, etc., then it becomes put in front of the Ark. The question that remains is, how does Moshe know that it's meant to be put in front of the ark? After all, by definition, the initial command was the mishmeris, safekeeping, and didn't mention the ark for reasons that we said. There was no ark. So if when the command was originally given to put it away for safekeeping, there wasn't an ark, how do you know that when there is an ark, it's meant to be put specifically there? This question is actually addressed by the Gemara in Maseches Chrysus and in Maseches Horius. And the Gemara says, Moshe concluded 
were inferred that it should specifically be in front of the ark when there was an ark based on a Gezerah Shava. A Gezerah Shava, briefly, as we know, one linking word between two contexts, there's flow of information. So, later on, with the rebellion of Korach, there's another item that Moshe was told to put le mishmeres lefneha edus, as a safekeeping in front of the testimony, in front of the Oron, and that is the staff of Moshe, of Aaron, that uh, blossomed and flowered and, uh, and it came forth with almonds. Says Moshe reasoned a Gezei Shava. It's amazing. It's a Gezei Shava in real time as it's happening. Because originally Hashem said, put the man away as a mishmeres, as a safekeeping. And subsequently, a year and a half later, he said to Moshe, put Aaron's staff away as a mishmeres. Before the testimony, Moshe made a Gezei Shava between these two mishmereses and says, just like this was Mishmeris means before the Ark, so to the earlier one. And subsequently, therefore, Moshe discovered that what Hashem originally told him, where he couldn't have mentioned the Ark, is also intended to be before the Ark. Says Meshachachma, everything that we've just said is in the verses in front of us. Originally, <coughs> Hashem says to Moshe, put the man away as a Mishmeris, without specifying. Subsequently, Moshe does specify. It should be Lefnei Hashem before Hashem in the Mishkan. Where did he get that from? It says verse 34, Kasher Tziva Hashem El Moshe. Because just as when Hashem told Moshe, and this is not a reference to the man, it's a reference to something else that was told directly to Moshe, namely his own mitzvah, to put, to put Aaron's staff specifically before the Edus, so too Moshe makes the Gezei Shava and tells Aaron, Aaron Edus here too Mishmeris means in front of the Edus. Absolutely stunning Parshanut, and that's really one of the trademarks of Meshachachma. You look at the Pasuk, you learn through Shas, and then you go back to the Pasuk, and it's a completely different Pasuk. So we'll leave it over here for this evening. I wish you all a good night and a wonderful week ahead. All the very best. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Good night.